Hey guys, welcome to the show. Before we begin, I'd like to let you know that you can find us on Twitter at ICGAW, that's I-C-G-A-W. You can also email us at ICGAWpod at gmail.com. Today we'll be checking out a question that was tweeted into us, so feel free to add to the conversation and shoot them in. Tell your friends to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. All right, here we go. What's up, guys? Welcome to A Can't Get Any Worse, America's Worst Podcast for America's Worst Hockey Team. I'm your host, Jay, and on today's show, we'll be talking about an article from ESPN discussing the low number of performance-enhancing drug offenses in the NHL, what that looks like, what the policy is like, and how players are actually caught using these substances when they are. We'll be reviewing some games against the Jets, Wild, and Penguins that have seen the Sabres win six straight games for the first time since the 2009-2010 season. We'll be looking ahead to games against the Flyers, Habs, and Red Wings, and we'll finish the show talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and we'll be opening up a mailbag question for you as well. If you enjoy the show, we would so appreciate it if you dropped us a five-star review on iTunes, like and subscribe, wherever else you find your podcasts. We so appreciate the support, the kind words, and the questions that are emailed and tweet us in. Here we go with part one. Moving on to part one with what are you reading? Um, This one is from ESPN.com, and it's by Emily Kaplan, published on November 19th. And the headline is, Why Haven't There Been More PED Cases in the NHL? And it starts off talking about what you probably remember from this summer with Nate Schmidt's case over the summer. He was banned 20 games for testing positive on PED tests. During that time, the Vegas Golden Knights stood by him pretty affirmatively and even gave him a pretty fat contract extension while he was suspended. He was really vocal about his displeasure about this decision, and you might remember his response, which was quoted in this article. Not only did I not intentionally take a banned substance, I could not have received any performance enhancement benefit from the trace amount that inadvertently got into my system at a level that was far too small to have any effect. This low amount was consistent with environmental contamination that I could not have possibly prevented. In another statement, he referred to the amount as being like a pinch of salt in an Olympic swimming pool. Those actually weren't his words. That was the medical opinion of a doctor who testified at his hearing. So he was found with a trace, trace amount of a substance that he argues, even if I did intentionally take it, there's no way it would have benefited me at any time on the ice. And not only that, I didn't intentionally take it. And the article moves on to talk about or just address various opinions from various pretty prominent players in the NHL about why there are there or there is such a shortage of PED cases in the NHL compared to other sports Um, starts off with a quote from TJ Oshie. He says, 
I don't think PEDs are really involved anywhere in hockey, really. I know Schmidt pretty well. I played with him for two years. In my opinion, he must have had just the worst luck with whatever happened. He's the most honest, nicest person, and I can't see him ever doing something to gain an advantage illegally so. Article goes on to say, We may never know the truth about Schmidt's innocence, but we do know that his case was quite rare. Since the current collective bargaining agreement was ratified in 2013, there have only been five suspensions. As much of the sports world, specifically Olympic sports and baseball, face a reckoning on performance-enhancing drugs, it's worth asking why the NHL hasn't had more cases. Do hockey players really not dope, or is the system designed to allow them to hide? The narrative that they seem to address as they go on seems to be that it's just not worth it for these players to use performance-enhancing drugs. And the interviews um, cites a number of NHL players, and as they're going through, it seems like performance-enhancing drugs are just uniformly downplayed. They cite Connor McDavid, who says that people don't really talk about it, and he's not really aware of any players having used. They cite Jonathan Taves, who says that hockey involves too much balance between strength, speed, precision, and awareness, and that accenting just strength would offset that balance, so performance-enhancing drugs wouldn't really help players. If you think about it, like bulking up in the modern game doesn't really help players in a sport that is based almost exclusively on speed and precision now. The author also cites an unnamed recently retired NHL player who just discusses that the NHL career is too short, fragile, and cheap, and it's just not worth it for players to engage in this kind of behavior. Here's his quote. You look at what the take-home salary is after escrow, and for most of these guys' careers are short as it is. One positive test, and you're giving up a fourth of your salary for the season, he said. It's just not worth it. The article then moves on to talk about what this new policy looks like for how and when players are tested after the new collective bargaining agreement from 2013. Things were kind of beefed up, and so although testing happens in a limited capacity, there is a still fair amount of random testing. A maximum of 60 players are tested in the offseason. They're selected randomly. Every team is uh, subjected to team-wide no-notice testing once during training camp and once during the regular season. Individual players can be selected for random testing during the regular season and playoffs. Anytime the testing takes place, it must be done at work on the day of a scheduled practice or meeting. Testing does not occur on game days. An official from another sports governing association who works closely with the drug policy reviewed the NHL's guidelines and said, trust me, if a guy is using, he can slip through the cracks. Easy. It's the unlucky unlucky or truly careless guys that get caught. And the article finishes by discussing the actual written policy of what happens when you are caught. When it comes to banned substances, the league has a zero tolerance policy, as seen by Nate Schmidt's case. Any adverse analytical finding counts. So that grain of salt in the Olympic swimming pool counts, even if Nate Schmidt has a significant issue with it. A first positive test results in a 20-game suspension and referral to the league's Substance Abuse and Behavioral Health Program for potential treatment. A second positive test mandates a 60-game suspension, while a third offense means a quote-unquote permanent suspension, but a player can apply for reinstatement after two years. So I have a couple takeaways from this one. And my first takeaway is that there are more 
Nate Schmitz out there. If only 60 players per offseason are randomly tested, and there's only one random full team testing during the season for each team, and players are just randomly selected after that, but they're not selected on game day because there are no game day tests, there have to be guys who are either A, knowingly doing something wrong but are slipping through the cracks, or B, doing something wrong that they don't know is wrong, as Nate Schmidt claims he was, but they just haven't been boned by this program yet. Overall, like the um, one official from another sports governing association, whoever that is, said, like this program isn't quite good enough. This program needs a little bit of beefing up. I don't fully trust that what Jonathan Taves said about how, like, oh, well, it doesn't really provide much benefit for us. Well, yes, you, you know, you, we're not looking for a bunch of, you know, six, five, 250 pound goons out there in the NHL anymore. But what about endurance? I mean, this is a league where players are lauded if they're able to skate 22, 24, 26, 27, up to 30 minutes of ice time a game. You need incredible endurance to be capable of doing that. I refuse to believe that there are no performance-enhancing drugs that would not enable a player to do that better. Well, that said, the one thing I think I need to approve and applaud the NHL for is their written policy, because that's not something that this league is particularly known for, and we've talked about it on the show a couple times, and we're seeing it with the challenge of not knowing what the league is going to do with hits to the head, and you think about it, like look at Nate Schmidt's suspension, 20 games. Tom Wilson also got 20 games. He appealed and it was dropped down to 14 games, but we don't know where that 20 games came from. There was no written policy about what happens for your first, second, fifth, or 17th offense that it basically was for him about where that 20 games came from. Here it is, written policy. First test, 20 games. Second test, 60 games. Third test, you're out. Um, so an interesting look into some player opinions of performance enhancing drugs. I mean, they're like most NHL player statements, they're they're pretty uniform and a little vanilla, but I think maybe a bit of an insult, an insult insight into this program and whether or not it should and can be beefed up in the future. I think in order for that to happen, we're going to have to see more Nate Schmitz caught in this program that has a lot of holes for a more beefed up program to be suggested and put through. If we're only going to see five guys in five years, as this article seems to suggest, be caught, I don't think we're going to see a vamped up program designed to, or better designed to catch players in the act on this. That's it for what are you reading. We're going to move on to part two where we're going to review our last three games leading up to our six-game winning streak. I will tweet out that article for you guys to check out if you would like to. Join us in part two. We'll see you in a second. All right, guys, moving on to part two, where we're going to review our last three games. And full disclosure here, I was out of town this weekend and was unable to watch most of the Winnipeg and 
wild games. So most of my recaps are coming from highlights and general stats that I've read about and read up on. Uh, So some of you might genuinely know more about these games than I do. In fact, I would almost guarantee that you know more about these games than I do. But I'm just going to cover some goals and general takeaways from these three games. Going in to Winnipeg Friday night. Lineups were mostly the same. It was Carter Hutton in net, although we did see Tage Thompson come into the lineup for Evan Rodriguez. And in the first period, the Winnipeg Jets just dumped it on the Sabres. The Sabres are outshot 8-1 to through the first 10 minutes. A couple minutes later, after some exceptional saves from Hutton, they were weathering the storm, but it was still 12-4 to in shots. And 13 minutes into the second... Larson was feeding Thompson. He was trying to come below the goal line, and he tries to feed it back to Scandella on the doorstep. It's a good little play from them trying to manufacture a chance, but Brian Little is just sprawling across the floor, and he gets a stick to it, and the puck bounces in an incredible fluke breakaway pass for Line A on a two-on-one with Kyle Connor against Beaulieu. Line A carries, Connor buries. It's 1-0 with 13 minutes into the game. On the bounce of play, this is a really fair scoreline, and I, I read something that someone really wanted to get on Tage Thompson's case, but this was really not his fault at all. I mean, if he had gotten that puck to Scandella through traffic for a great chance, I think we would have been praising his efforts. Also, I think you have to consider, I think you could give Brian Little 100 chances to deflect that puck the way that he did for the perfect breakout pass for, for Patrick Line, and I don't think he would be able to do it. Bit of a fluke two-on-one that they manufacture that they're able to bury on the balance of play. Definitely a fair scoreline. And the Jets have just been totally dominant. They The Sabres needed Carter Hutton again and again with great saves on Ehlers just 40 seconds later. Also a great save on Blake Wheeler, who was riding an 11-point point point streak, or sorry, 11-game point streak going into this game. It's not going well, but it's not embarrassing yet. Not a great number of highlights from the second But early in the third, the Sabres are on a power play off a Tanev holding call. Eichel gets it on the point and wrists one. There's a little bit of back and forth in front of the net. And Skinner comes in and scores his 14th of the season on the backhand. We have a 1-1 out of nowhere. And that carries it to the shootout, which actually goes to the seventh round of shooting. Round one, Shifley saved, but Eichel scores. Round two, Line scores, but Reinhardt saved. That's 1-1. Round three, Wheeler saved, middle step, melts the ice again with an attempt sort of similar to his one against the Vancouver Canucks, but he hits the post, little saved, and Thompson has a little bit of an embarrassing one. Kyle Connor scores, Palmer scores to keep it alive, Roslovich is saved, Ocposo is saved, and into the seventh round, Perot is saved, and Sherry scores in the seventh round for a 2-1 shootout victory. Three points to take away from this one. Point one, wait a minute. We win shootouts now? So there was a stat going into uh, when we played, or sorry, yes, when we watched the game against the Vancouver Canucks. Eichel was one for nine attempts going into this season in his career in shootouts. He's now three for 11 and 100% on the season. And we've seen some horrible performances in the shootout in the last few seasons. I remember Laner being on an immense losing streak with them, and I can't find that stat, but I just remember 
either a statistic with statistical backup or just without it, this feeling of dread that we were just never going to make it out of a shootout. We also didn't really have any specialists for the shootout. O'Reilly wasn't that good at him. Eichel, as his stats suggest, isn't that phenomenal. I remember Reinhardt being okay, but not being able to get flashy at all and work a goaltender, just sort of being able to place a puck. Oddly enough, a couple seasons ago, I think one of our best performing shootout uh, players was Cal O'Reilly for like the six games that he was here. And it also wasn't phenomenal on the goaltending end either. While we didn't have our specialist shooting, we definitely didn't have a specialist in the goaltending goaltending end. But here we are, two in a row against two good teams, and we're contending in shootout situations. Point two I have from this game is I think we need to talk about Eichel, the playmaker. This game had his 16th assist for the season, and looking ahead, he reached 19 in the Pens game. He only had 39 all of last season, and we're only a quarter of the way through. He is almost halfway to his assists total of last season, only a quarter of the way through the season. I think we're possibly seeing an evolving position for him with different players around him. I think going into this season, you would have pegged him as a shoot first, ask questions later center, and I don't think you would have faulted him on that. He's got an incredible shot with incredible accuracy and incredible power, but here we are, and his numbers are very heavily loaded in the assists range. Uh, something interesting was talked about on the instigators earlier this week. I think it was yesterday where they were playing their buy sell trade game and what they were buying, selling or trading was this statement that Jack Eichel is one of the most underrated players in the league. And I, I liked what one of them said that, look, overall, you cannot be underrated as a second overall pick. Like You are pretty highly lauded and thought of. You're expected to perform as a second overall pick. But at the same time, this is a player who is evolving into a next level of status. And I think while he's not underrated in how he's talked about, he is maybe underconsidered just in the way that he plays. He's not flashy. He's not a like razzle-dazzle player. He just gets it done. And I kind of consider him kind of similar to like a, a Nate McKinnon in that like if he could get Nate McKinnon numbers, that would be amazing. That's not what I'm suggesting right now. But just in that, like Nate McKinnon's not necessarily flashy. He's just hard and fast and gets to the point and he makes things happen. And he's never trying to do it with an exceptional amount of flair or pizzazz. He just gets it done and he's in the right positions and he's setting guys up. And I think we're seeing Eichel evolve into that role. He's still going to chip in with a fair number of goals. I imagine that some of those goals, too many of those goals, are going to be incredible. But here he is with 19 assists on the season, almost halfway to his total from last season, only a quarter of the way into the season. Point three takeaway from this game, we need to sign Jeff Skinner. I don't know exactly what it's going to take. I would imagine now we are reaching a point where with his being a UFA at the end of this season, we're talking eight, we're talking nine. The cap is going to go up, and the Sabres don't want him to hit free agency because that would be an incredible risk if they were to let him walk for a day in free agency. The play, or the Sabres, I'm sorry, need to sign him. We will not see another player of the caliber like Skinner for years. And you, to reach that next level, I mean, you need 
top number one centers. You need an exceptional number two center. You need secondary scoring and bottom six players who can do more than just rumble, tumble, and fight. You also need elite scoring wingers, and that is what Jeff Skinner is. I think it was an incredible pickup over the summer. I think you still win the trade if the Sabres don't make the playoffs at the end of the season and they pitch Jeff Skinner for another first-round pick, which he is absolutely, even as a rental, 100% worth. If you pitch him, we're still winning that trade with Carolina, I think. If we turn that number of assets, a bunch of maybes, a bunch of picks, and Cliff Poo into having Jeff Skinner for a while and then selling him for another first-round pick and maybe another asset, great. But I think the Sabres have to make it a priority. I, I, I'm i sure this is not news. I'm sure they're sitting down with him or try, uh, planning to sit down with him in the very near future. I would say he probably comes in asking for something like 9, 9.5. It would not surprise me if he, they settled on 8. I think a lot of people were talking about, well, give him the Evander Kane contract, give him the 7-on-7, seven seven, which has been popular for the last couple of seasons. The cap's going to go up, and Jeff Skinner is better than Evander Kane. And I think we're going to see that throughout the rest of the season, is that even on an inferior team, Jeff Skinner is capable of more things than Evander Kane was capable of. He's a better player, and with the cap going up and with his importance to this team, I don't think 7-on-7 is exactly going to get it done. I'd be ecstatic if we got him on 7-on-7. I think we're going to be talking more about 8. But point three, we need to sign Jeff Skinner. Moving on to Saturday, where the Sabres went to a back-to-back against the Minnesota Wild, and four minutes into this one, Bogo makes probably his worst play of the season. He plays it right off a board and straight to Zach Parisi, who's just hanging out in the neutral zone. He zips in, coming down the right. He's totally unmarked because Bogo is now out of position after misplaying the puck, and he zips in, finds the far corner over Allmark. 7.45 in on the power play. Dumba gets teed up on the point and just lets a bomb go that finds its way past Allmark's uh, shoulder. Allmark was screened, to be fair, but the, we're, we're down 2-0 into the first. Allmark has to make some saves to keep it a two-goal deficit, but 14.52 into the period, Ocposo carries it into the zone, leaves it for Darlene, who goes wide at first and then turns on a dime and comes back inside and plays just a lethal stellar pass to McCabe on the doorstep, and he roofs it. And dear Lord, this is one of those clips that we watched again and again and again on YouTube of Rasmus Dahlin in a Frölunda Indians jersey in Sweden when we were looking at him before the draft. You could watch that highlight 70 times, and it doesn't lose its glamour. This is an 18-year-old player grabbing an offensive play by the scruff of the neck and just making it his plaything. An incredible, incredible play from back to front. I also, like, I, I have a personal soft spot for when... A defensive guy makes an incredible offensive play and then tees up the other defensive guy. Like, look, look at where both of our defensemen are in that play, all within three feet of the net when that goes in. I mean, if it doesn't go in, we might be in a lot of trouble coming back the other way, but what an incredible play. Into the third period, Skinner comes into the zone and spins away from his defender who drops it to Bogo, who blasts it 
Eichel is ramming away at the rebound, and his attempt kind of dribbles through Dubnik and out to the side a little bit, and Dahlin crashes in to pound it home for the equalizer. Late in the third, after being down 2-0, I was, you know, out and about this weekend, was out of town, and I'd kind of resigned myself like, wow, you know, we're down 2-0, so I hadn't been following the game too much, and my phone buzzes, and it's 2-2. So late in the third, I turn the game on on my phone with two minutes left, just in time to see Eichel get it to Palmer off the boards. Palmer backhands it from too far out to score on a backhand, if we're being perfectly honest. But it goes past Dubnik, and the Sabres win. And credit to Palmer, A, for the goal, and B, for having a a probably classier, more reserved celebration against his former team than we would normally see. That doesn't always happen, so it's good to see when it's your guy. And that's five in a row. Points from this game, Sabres find a way to win. They were outshot 39-29, to and Allmark was repeatedly the hero. This is kind of a common theme that is developing over these games. Like Here's another comeback victory. They had another comeback victory against the Pens. Here's another win that involves coming from being behind, coming from being totally outshot, and finding ways to win. We'll talk about that in uh, our points from the Pens game with comments from John Tortorella this week. Point two, the absolute rock star ascendancy of this defensive core. Uh, Rattling off, these are all stats from after the Pens game. Darlene, 10 points. McCabe, 9 points. McCabe only had 12 points all of last season. He's on 9 right now. Ristolainen, 11 points. He had 41 last season. Scandella, 5 points. Beaulieu is on 4 points. He had 9 points all of last season. Zach Bogosian is on 4 points. He had 1 point all of last season. Granted, he only played 18 games, but still, 4 points in his... I think he's played 16 games. So 4 points in 16 games versus 1 point in 18 games. Casey Nelson has 3 points. And that is 7 defensemen with at least 1 goal. Only Detroit has more than that. And a few seasons ago, I remember uh, like Rasmus Ristolainen was leading the rest of the D-Corps by a mile 20 games in. And he wasn't, and still isn't at this time if we whisper that quietly, that good. And I remember reading a stat in his rookie season that said, I'm sorry, not a stat, but here's a question. Someone asked, does Rasmus Ristolainen have more points than all of the Sabres' defensive core combined? And the answer was, he doesn't, but you had to think about it for a second. And I think we also kind of saw a little bit of that last year. Last year, it took until December for a defenseman to score a goal. And here we are with a defensive core that's not only a pretty hard group of guys to play against. All of these guys are capable of working some guys along the boards or in open ice, but here they are being able to contribute phenomenally on the offensive end. Point three, this is Rasmus Dahlin's team now, sort of. And there's one Corsi stat that I found very prominent here that we need to talk about, and it's comparing Jack Eichel's Corsi scores with and without Rasmus Dahlin and his Corsi scores with and without Rasmus Ristolainen. If you're not familiar with what Corsi is, it's basically a statistical way to figure out how useful is the possession of the team when certain players are on the ice. So it takes into account 
the number of shots on target, the number of shots off target, and the number of blocked shots. And it puts it into a very simple mix where certain scores are considered. And it really gives you an, an, an ability to not only look at how well a team is playing, but also look at Corsi scores when certain players are on the ice with certain players. So it's a way to possibly find some sort of statistical connection between, all right, it seems very apparent that this player plays a lot better with this player. We talked about it uh, last two weeks ago when we were talking about Casey Middlestat's um, stats and how he seemed to be playing a lot better with guys like Kyle Ocposo and Connor Sherry than he was when he was playing with Tage Thompson. Here are the stats with Jack Eichel with Ristolainen. His Corsi 4 with Rasmus Dahlin is 57.5. His Corsi 4 without Dahlin is 49%, suggesting that Jack Eichel plays better when Rasmus Dahlin is on the ice. That seems rather simple. I think you would kind of expect that. Here's his stats with Rasmus Ristolainen. Jack Eichel with Rasmus Ristolainen, Corsi 4, 46.5%. Corsi 4 without Ristolainen, 55%. Suggesting not only does Jack Eichel seem to play much, much better with Rasmus Dahlin than Rasmus Ristolainen, it seems to suggest that Jack Eichel plays better without Rasmus Ristolainen than with Rasmus Ristolainen. And so I don't think this is necessarily something totally new. I think we are seeing with Rasmus Dahlin coming in as an 18-year-old player and grabbing offensive plays by the scruff of the neck and watching Ristolainen. Now we're seeing some of those deficiencies with Ristolainen's game as he's coming through. But here is some statistical representation to show, like, here's our best player playing with two different defensemen. And here he is not only playing better with one than the other, but he's playing better without one than with him, and something kind of significant. Moving on to our game against Pittsburgh, and I was actually able to watch this one. The Pens are struggling. They had lost to Ottawa on Saturday. They were looking at Casey DeSmith in goal for the struggling Matt Murray. Lineup was... Mostly the same, but the J crew is reunited with uh, Skinner, Eichel, and Pominville at the top of the line. Sam goes down to the third line with Sabaka and Tage Thompson, who is in for his third straight game. But Casey Nelson returns for Beaulieu, and it's Carter in goal. Pens are without Crosby, who is struggling with a head injury. And early on, there's some good possession and a bad clearance and a good forecheck from Malkin sees Tanner Pearson get teed up, but Carter Cutton denies him with his first, uh, or sorry, denies him of his first with a great glove save. Right after that, Zemgis Giergensen draws a high stick going to the net. It's Olimata the box. It's Eichel, Reinhardt, Patrick Berglund, interestingly enough, Skinner, and Rasmus Dahlin out there. Decent possession, but Hutton, I think the most significant item is that Hutton has to deny a breakaway on a rebound, but the Pens are able to kill. And for most of this period, it's just all Pens. Carter Hutton is saving the Titanic out there, and the, his best save was on Malkin, who tries this nifty through-the-legs attempt as he goes across in front, but Hutton makes the pad save. And a couple minutes in, Brassard gets on a breakaway and streaks through. Dahlin is kind of caught between closing him off and covering a winger who's coming down the right-hand side. Brassard goes right down the middle and wrists it through Hutton. 
it, it was coming. There was a period of ascendancy with the Penguins. They were definitely on top, and they capitalized. Sabres do respond. Uh, Simone fails to clear the zone, and Bogo feeds Reinhardt in space, who drops it to an incoming Tage Thompson, who puts a blast past Casey to Smith. And there we go, kid, dude. Like, we knew he had a cannon, but we haven't seen him use it all regular season. We hadn't seen him contribute um, much of anything this this regular season. And so to see him, first of all, get three games in a row, and second of all, get off the mark for the season with his first goal of the season, what I believe is his fourth ever NHL goal. There we go, dude. 16 minutes in, Kessel scores his 10th of the season. The Pens are showing off their speed. Someone's streaking down the left. I can't remember exactly who it is, but he squares across to Kessel, who's crashing the net. Darlene is there with his stick, and it might technically go off Darlene's stick into the net instead of Kessel's, but Darlene can't quite recover. Kessel scores, and it's 2-1, 16 minutes in. McCabe dropped somebody on the board a couple minutes later, and we got kind of a lame fight. Like, Riley Sheehan came up to him, kind of just like to moan about it, like, dude, why are you hitting our player like that? And McCabe just <laughs> grabbed him and dropped the gloves, and Sheehan wants nothing to do with him. They exchange a couple of weak ones and fall down. Pens get a power play for the boarding call, but Sabres are able to kill. Into the second period, early in the second period, Gensel comes over the line and he hits Hutton in the pad. It comes right back, back, uh, right back to him off Darlene's skate, and he scores on the rebound. Sabres challenge on interference, but it's light. Like There's a stick in Hutton's pad, but it's very, very light. The Sabres are still kind of hopeful. The refs missed just a blatant, clear tripping call on Bogo as Getzel got set free. Like he, he stuck his stick between Bogo's legs, tripped him, and then took off on almost a breakaway after he had cleared Bogo out. Um, there was a joke that I read online that uh, Phil Housley didn't actually think he was going to win this call. He just wanted an extra minute to yell at the refs about the Bogo trip. The call stands. We're down 3-1. Five minutes in, just a couple minutes later, the Penguins are all over them, and Dalian goes to sleep as Johnson as a Johnson rebound hits Tanner Pearson. He hammers it home, and it's 4-1. Dalian has been on the ice for all four, as we'll talk about after this game. Sabres end up on a longer kill of a five-on-three as Bogo and Scandella go into the box. Scandella was f- like funny but kind of dangerous he took a hard Malkin slap shot point blank in the angle and he's falling in anguish and as he's doing so he flails his stick and that hits Malkin in the back of the head like some sort of medieval club it's not really Scandella's fault since he was I mean he's basically might have had his ankle broken but since Malkin is okay we can kind of say that it looked kind of hilarious Malkin was able to continue the game and ended up being fine Towards the end of this power play, Hutton has maybe his best save of the season with his skate coming back to recover to save a Phil Kessel one-timer. 10.39 into the period, Eichel ties up Hornquist behind the net. The puck falls to Skinner. He comes around and plays in Bogo for a blast. It's 2-4. We're back in the game. Seven minutes later, just about, Casey Nelson enters the zone. He throws one in, and Connor Sherry is battling against Jack Johnson. It hits Jack Johnson's skate and goes into the net. 
Sherry with another classy non-celebration against his former team, but I think that non-celebration also kind of has to do with the fact that he's shrugging and just saying, uh, I don't know, about whether or not he had touched it on the way in. Now it's really a game, and the period ends as a three-goal deficit is reduced to one. Into the third period, it is announced that Scandella won't return, as we'll talk about in a second. Sabres get a freebie power play on a week, Colin Brassard, but they're due some luck in that regard after that BOGO trip. Some okay chances, but it's killed. Really, where they're getting most of their chances is their forecheck, which is just relentless, but the lack of finishing is hurting them. Hutton has to bail them out on more than a few chances, but the Sabres are just cranking it on pressure-wise, and they capitalize through another forecheck, which has been great. Bogo catches it on a failed clearance on the end of the zone. He puts it to Akposo, who squares it to Casey Middlestat, who roofs it with an incredible attempt. Tie game, 4-4. Shortly after that, Jake Gensel is denied twice in a row by Hutton to keep it tied, and he also stops a Phil Kessel breakaway shortly afterward. It's just an absolute gunfight. The shots are 39-40 as it goes to overtime. And before we even get into overtime, I typed this into the show notes. Five points on an away trip against the Jets, Wild, and Pens. I thought going into this trip, if we get three points, that's a success. Here we are with five with the opportunity for six. Sabres roll out with Sherry, Risto, and Eichel, and a little bit of possession squaring back and forth. Malkin is trying to get into the zone. The puck is coming to him, but Risto dives across the defensive blue line and smacks it to send Eichel in. He enters the zone, has Sherry coming with him, but he chooses to go alone, flips it onto DeSmith, and it dribbles over the line for a six-pack of wins on the away trip. Jack Eichel double fist bumps and kind of a goofy celebration, but embraces the mob of on-rushing teammates, looks to the skies, and just roars a victory cry felt by most of Western New York back home. Three points, three takeaways. Point one, the Sabres are absolutely murdered by straight-up speed in this game. The first three goals involve a guy coming over the line fast and unchecked. I don't know if that's defensive errors. I don't know if it's an inability to deal with speed. To be determined, but there's an easy trend in that game. Three goals in this game came from a guy just blowing by everyone over the line. Point two, on a related note, we were lauding Rasmus Dahlin for his offensive genius in this last game, and he did show some of that in this game. Came through with a, an amazing attempt right up the middle where he hit the post at one point. The broadca- uh, broadcast guys had said something early on, like, wow, he has been so good defensively. He should be getting penalty kill opportunities. And I disagreed with this before this game. And my point, too, from this game is that Rasmus Dahlin needs to work on some defensive play. He's not making the greatest decisions. These weren't decision-making items in this game. They were technical items. He was getting caught between two minds in the first. He's not being strong enough to tie up Kessel on the squared pass for the second. He's not being committed enough to push Pearson off for the fourth. He was involved in the third as well, but I don't want to be too critical of him because that play should have been called dead on the BOGO trip long before he was in that position. But still, here he is. They're not... um, They're not decision-making items. They're just technical items. They're being in the right place and being capable of doing the right things. And the guys were lauding him for his defensive ability. And I I think very, 
I think we saw Rasmus Dahlin's worst game this season, and this is an aspect of his game that, well, we are going to see an incredible offensive player going forward. Here's an aspect of his game that needs to be fixed. Point three, I actually typed this when the Sabres were 4-1 down, but I wanted to leave it. What I typed was, a lion is still a lion. And we have talked about the Penguins and how how much they are struggling this season, and they might be reaching a point where they might start making some desperate decisions with some of their longtime big gun players. And I typed this as I was resigned to a defeat to them 4-1. In my mind, that was finally too far for this team to recover from. And what I thought was like, look, here's here's the Penguins. They're still capable of this. They're still capable of running a team. And we shouldn't feel bad about losing to them. I don't think this detracts from any part of this Sabres team. This beast finally woke up. A lion is still a lion. But here we are discussing a sixth straight victory for this team. And Eichel tells Rob Ray afterwards that it's like a family in the locker room this season, signaling a turnaround of epic and massive proportions maybe maybe the sabers are the lions now maybe this is really us pittsburgh has one win in their last 10 games and they're without Sidney crosby but maybe this is what the sabers are capable of now i'm i'm still i'm still so tentative i mean look hottest team in the league six straight wins they haven't done that since 2009, 2010, if they win their seventh straight tonight against the Flyers, that will be the first time since the, I believe, the 05-06 season, and I do kind of expect them to win that game against the Flyers. I think we're going to see a raucous home crowd, possibly a sellout after all of this um, against the Flyers, but I'm still a little skeptical. I mean, this, here's what we need to take away from this. This is not sustainable, all right? You cannot continually, we talked about it in the last pod, you cannot continually put yourself in this situation, these types of situations, and come out successful. Five out of the last six, they've had work to do coming from behind. Five out of their six victories, they've had to come from behind to win. Is it incredible that they did that? Absolutely 150%. Is it sustainable? Absolutely not. And that's something I think that needs to be addressed is, all right, let's see this team reach a new level. This is, this is a new level. Let's see them reach the next level rather than putting themselves in a position where they need to come back and show some resiliency and come back, which is amazing. They weren't capable of doing that last season. Let's see them reach the next step where they put teams in positions where they need to be the ones who need to come back and show resiliency. Let's see this team get out from the front foot and start putting teams in positions where they need to get desperate and they need to be the ones working games. Then we can see this team start to get into positions where they, rather than trying to force the issue, rather than trying to get desperate and make frantic decisions and make epic comebacks, we can see this team start to learn how to manage games, start to learn how to see games out rather than trying to find that last-ditch winner again and again and again. Stock up, stock down, uh, stock down over these last couple of 
games. Um, I mean, first of all, stock up. I think just the whole team, that's six straight wins. But if we got to be specific, let's talk about Carter Hutton because he absolutely stole games against Winnipeg and Pittsburgh this week. Had maybe his best save to deny a 5-1 against the Pens and Bogo made it 4-2 later. If that game had gone 5-1, I think the Sabres absolutely 100% lose that game. Hutton makes the save. It's 4-2 minutes later. That's what great goalies do. The Sabres tied it, and he denied an immediate response from Jake Gensel, denies Kessel on a breakaway. I mean, his stats are not incredible His um, because I think he's, he's facing a large number of shots, and we, the Sabres are conceding a large number of goals. But in those games that they concede a large number of goals, they're also scoring a lot. So his stats are not incredible if you look them up, but he he is capable of standing on his head and stealing games. What an incredible pickup over the summer. And with it not just with how hot he is right now and how incredible he's been, but I mean three years and what, three point two five million for what is clearly a starting caliber goalie. What an incredible pickup. I also want to give a shout out, shout out specifically to a line of players who have been bemoaned in the past, at least two of them. And it's the Giergensigns, Berglund, Johan Larson line. And they look wildly good. Their numbers aren't great. They're not contributing an immense number of goals. And that's one thing with secondary scoring that we're looking to see more from in this in this aspect. But they're causing so many problems on the ice for other teams. They were particularly good against the Pens. They're hardworking. They're probably the most physical line out there. They're capable of quick moments of pace and brilliance. They're also capable of murdering guys on the boards. I think this this might be the least favorite line for some teams to play against because I don't think they ever give up. And that is... A significant turnaround for two of these guys. I mean, Gergensen's and Larson were destroyed by fans for most of the last few seasons, and for good reason. There was a lack of effort. There was a lack of commitment. They weren't particularly good at all the last two seasons. And here we are. I think that's an incredibly, incredibly effective third slash fourth line with what they're out there to do, which is just cause problems. Get out there get in faces, get on the forecheck, and make the team make mistakes. Wear out teams so that you can get those more skilled players in against tired lines. Stock down, we're going to talk about two players that I think are just caught in a rough situation. One of them is Evan Rodriguez. He was scratched for the last few games, which is a little bit harsh, I think, but we'll talk about why in a second. And Remy Eli, he hasn't played in forever. His last game was November 1st in Ottawa. He has no points in five games. He hasn't looked bad in those five games, but there are no numbers to support bringing him back into the lineup. I am almost certain he gets waived once Scott Wilson is healthy. But both of these guys are caught out of the team. There's no real statistical evidence to suggest that they should be out of the team, but they were taken out of the team, and right after they were taken out, this team caught fire and is now on six straight wins, and you're not taking someone out of the lineup if a team wins six straight wins. There's no, no, it would not be fair to the players um, to take them out of that lineup to reinsert Evan Rodriguez and Remy Eli. I mean, particularly, we saw Tage Thompson have probably his best game against the Penguins, and that it, we we could still say that even if he didn't score his goal. He had a really great game. He's in there. He's causing problems. He's using his body. He's using his long reach. He's been really great. 
The unfortunate aspect of that is that Evan Rodriguez is caught out of the lineup in this case. And so I, I think we'll definitely see Evan in the near future. I think we might be reaching the end of Remy Eli's tenure as a Buffalo Sabre. We'll see what happens when Scott Wilson gets healthy, but there's our stock down right there. That's it for part two. Join us in part three, where we'll be previewing the Sabres' next outings, talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and opening up a mailbag with some questions from listeners. We'll see you guys in a second. All right, guys, welcome to part three, and we're going to be previewing the Sabres' next outings on Wednesday, which is actually today, our day of recording. So later this evening, the Philadelphia Flyers are going to be coming to town. They had an impressive season last year, which ended with them being walloped by the Pens in the first round. They technically only lost 4-2 on the series, but some of those losses were just beatings. And they looked to kind of double down on their progress last season with their biggest summer acquisition, which was James uh, James Van Riemsdyk came out of Toronto. He signed a 7-on-7, seven seven, and he's recently just returned from missing over a month with an injury. So the Sabres are going to have to deal with him tonight. Claude Giroux is currently their point leader at 24 points with seven goals and 17 assists. He's coming off his first ever 100-point season, and he's close to being on pace with that again. Sabres will also have to deal with him. They've had a slow start to the season. They're 9-9-2. They recently lost to Tampa 6-5 in overtime on Saturday night. That's three in a row for them, so they might feel like they have something to prove when they come to town. At the same time, if they had won one of those games, they would probably be right up in the playoff discussion in the Metro Division, which is really tight at the moment. So I, I would not even begin to suggest that things are over for them. They could easily turn this around in the next three games. Their biggest difficulty this season is probably just keeping the puck out of the net. They are 29th in goals against per goals played with 3.55 goals per game. Brian Elliott hasn't been great. He's got a 2.59 goals against and a .911 save average. But Calvin Pickard, who was picked up off waivers from Toronto this offseason, has been horrible. He has 4.6 goals against for a .5, or sorry, .852 save percentage. So definitely a difficulty for them that the Sabres can look to take advantage of. I think the biggest thing the Sabres can look to take advantage of in this game is just the atmosphere. I am anticipating a sellout wild crowd tonight after six games. Just the the furor and the excitement about this team the last few days is something we haven't experienced in a long time. I'm walking through the hallway at school and students are coming up to me and asking me about the Sabres and talking about the Sabres and wow, did you watch the game last night? And the faculty are stopping by to talk about how things have been going and that hasn't happened for years. No one even wanted to talk about this team for the last few years. I think with what we're seeing with a holiday week, Thanksgiving tomorrow, we're going to see a wild crowd in there tonight. Hopefully the Sabres are able to take that with them in the game. From that, we move to Montreal on Friday. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about this one because we, we just saw Montreal just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Paul Byron is probably out of this one with an injury. The last time the Sabres 
uh, played the Montreal Canadiens was that 6-5 overtime win on November 8th. Since then, they've gone 3-1-1 in their last five. That last one was an OT loss to Washington on Monday. They're still hanging around and being the fast, hardworking team that they're trying to be while they kind of do this mini retool to rebuild. And I am fully anticipating another very tough game against this team. They do play the Devils tonight on Wednesday before coming to town, and so we'll see what their results are like after that one. After that, we go to a back-to-back at Detroit on Saturday. We knew what Detroit were going to be coming into the season. They have been doing all of the things that rebuilding teams do. They locked up their young talent to contracts with Dylan Larkin signing a 6 by 5 They've set themselves up for cap relief. They've got $15 million coming off the cap this offseason and $40 million by the season after that. And they've amassed an arsenal of picks. They have 11 in this upcoming draft. They'll probably sell a bit more. They're probably not done in amassing picks for this draft. That being said, they're also, like every rebuilding team, bloody terrible. They're 9-9-2 on the season. They've got 20 points out of 20 games. They play the Bruins and the Caps before Saturday, so things could look even worse before them. It's back-to-back games for the Sabres and for Detroit. So for the Sabres, that probably means Hutton against the Habs and Allmark in Detroit, but that might not change, and who knows what it means for Detroit. Their point leader is new contract signing Dylan Larkin. He's got eight goals, 11 assists, and 19. Nyquist's numbers are also pretty impressive with 13 assists. They're going to be without Darren Helm, who is out six to eight weeks with a shoulder injury. But we could possibly see our old pal Thomas Vanek return. He's been out for a while with a knee injury, but that might be on the mend per reports. Could be an interesting game because as I've been talking about how they've been horrible this season. I mean, actually looking at the numbers, 9-9-2 isn't that horrible, and they've had a few scalps on some bigger teams throughout the season. This isn't one I would look for the Sabres to immediately assume they're going to roll over a team. Like, there's too much parity in the league. There are still too many dangerous weapons on this Detroit team at home in a back-to-back. Anything can happen in this league. So I'm not going to write off any team in this case, and I'm not going to write off the Detroit Red Wings. They're capable of doing some items, but this is a team that is really fully committed to a full-on rebuild, and we'll see how things go throughout their season. Moving on to down the road, talking about Rochester and the Rochester Americans. The Amherst had a mixed bag of a weekend, going 1-1-1 on a back-to-back-to-back. They got absolutely dumped on 9-4 against Springfield. I believe the score for that one at one point was 9-2. Gooley had a nightmare that night. He had two assists, but was still a minus four. So if you do the math there, things were not working out well for him. After that game, they had an OT loss against Hartford. And then in their last game, they came back from being 3-1 down to beat Providence 4-3. Pilot and Redman are still incredible. They're still racking up the points. They're both in the top five, and Pilot is tied for top scorer in the league with 22 points. He's got three goals and 19 assists. They went 1-1-1 on the weekend, and they're still five points clear at the top of their division. But losing those three points does mean that they've slipped off the pace from league leading the Charlotte Checkers at the top of the league. I think the big question with this team is, is anybody going to get called up? And who is going to get called up? 
Scandella's injury is just noted as not serious and day-to-day, and that means that if somebody is going to come into the lineup, Casey Nelson and Nathan Beaulieu have been trading that seventh guy spot, there's possibly a spot up for grabs, but realistically, I, I don't think there isn't, and here's why. Casey Nelson has been really solid this season. Um, He's exactly, I think, what you want out of a seventh guy pairing. He's pretty cheap. He's steady. He's capable of doing a lot of things you look for modern day NHL defensemen to go or to do, and he doesn't create a whole lot of mistakes or doesn't manifest a whole lot of mistakes on the back end. Nathan Bullyu has been incredible this season. I think, you know, there are still some aspects of his game that he, he needs to keep an eye on. He's not always defensively brilliant, but his skating, his willingness to get involved in the play, his willingness to crash the net, he's been incredible this season. I don't think you can justify skipping over one of them for a Rochester American. I think if you're replacing Scandella, it's both of them coming into the lineup before we see someone from the Amherst come in. I think you've still got to call someone up. You want a seventh guy in case something goes wrong, so that will be an interesting item to see who actually gets called up, especially for tonight if it happens sometime today. If Scandella's not going to make it and they call someone up to fill in that position, they could realistically call someone up and then send them right back down because the Amherst don't play until Friday. So that's a possibility, but I think in terms of who's going to play, it's got to be Nelson and Beaulieu. I don't think you can justify and fairly say to them, we're going to put somebody from the minors in over you after your performances. That said, I still think we are approaching pilot time. Um, He is the AHL point leader. He is still learning. There's still a lot for him to develop on the smaller ice, but I think we are approaching a time where we might see him for a game or two. I mean, here's here's a hot take. If he's as good as we think he is, we could see a world where we could bring him into this team and flip someone like Rasmus Ristolainen. I genuinely think he could be that good. If his numbers in the AHL stay consistent like that, if he's actually that good, if we could talk a team into thinking Ristolainen is the player that we thought he was a few seasons ago, we could flip Ristolainen for an incredible asset and maybe not see a significant drop-off in the team. In fact, we might see the team improve with Pilot in it. That's a massive hot take, and I think there's too small of a sample size at this time to fully justify that and fully get behind that. But I think that's a realistic possibility going forward. The guy has been incredible. You watch him play live in person, his movement, his awareness, his playmaking ability, his shot, his pass, it's all there. He's a complete player. Um, And I think with some extra development, we could see someone very capable of taking it to teams around the league. Biggest issue I want to bring up with the Amherst this season I think is just a lack of a number one center. I mean, we saw in their struggles this weekend, it's clearly not Kevin Porter. He's 32. He's still able to contribute quite a bit. He's an exceptional veteran presence on the team, but they're lacking in that role. I would kind of like to see Alex Nylander get a shot there just to try it. I think he's one of the better playmaking offensive players, and I would kind of like to see him get a shot in that role and try to take the mantle in that position. I don't really anticipate 
his being able to be successful in that position, but I would kind of like to see what he would be able to do if he could play a top number one center role and try some playmaking ability, especially if you put some solid wingers around him and allowed him to play with a guy like um, Asplund or, or sorry, not a guy like Asplund, like a guy like Victor Olofsson once he gets healthy. I think that could be something that maybe we could see some progression there. Um, but at the same time, I don't think the Buffalo Sabres are grooming him to be a top center. They're grooming him to be a top winger. And so I don't know that we'll necessarily see that. But that's a weak spot for the Amherst. They have great center depth. They've got guys like O'Regan. Rasmus Asplund has been particularly good to the last couple of games. Sean Malone is back. But all of those guys, if they're going to be NHL talent, are going to be bottom six. And they're they're exceptional bottom six centers. Um, hardworking, intelligent, but we don't quite have that intelligent top line center for this team. And I think that's maybe the one weakness right now. They are home to Utica on Friday and away to Binghamton this weekend. If you are interested in checking out the Rochester Americans this Friday, you can find them home on Friday at seven o'clock. Moving on to around town, just a little bit of news. There's quite a bit of an injury bug in Boston with Chara going down with a really nasty knee injury against Colorado and Patrice Bergeron also going down with a shoulder injury. That might be something that could see them slip a little bit over the next month. And if the Sabres are going to try to assert their status in this top three position in the division, there's a team that is right below them who might be struggling quite a bit. Related to that, Vasilevsky with the Tampa Bay Lightning is also down for an extended period of time. However, I don't anticipate that stopping the Lightning for an extended period of time, even if he's out for a while. Um, Louis Domingue has looked pretty good, and also that team is just incredible, and I think they'll be able to survive a situation like that. Also in the news, the Blues have parted company with Mike Yeo. Uh, the Blues were 7-9-3 on the season and bottom of their division. They lost to the Kings, I believe the league bottom Kings, on Monday night and were shut out. They're a good team that added excellent pieces, and I think they're probably looking at the situation saying like, someone else can is able to do better. Someone else can get more out of this team. And on a similar light, the Oilers parted company with Todd McClellan and placed Ken Hitchcock in charge. Similar complaints. Here's a team that maybe has a few more issues in terms of depth and goalie, especially, and defensive depth, but it's also a team with Connor McDavid, and they've got to be thinking someone else can get more out of this team. And so I think right now, all eyes kind of wander towards Joel Quenneville. He stated that he wants to wait until the summer before he steps into a new program and a new team, and he wants to have a fresh slate and a fresh offseason when he does that. But at the same time, like, who wouldn't want to coach a team like the Blues, like a stacked team of talent who is capable of making a push this season if they can get it together. Who won, Who wouldn't want to coach Connor McDavid? And so I think we might see him reconsider that option with these jobs that are available. Like maybe he'll swoop in and take one of these jobs before someone else does. Both teams have announced that they are appointing their replacements on interim on an interim basis. And so they're, they're looking 
for new players. There are sorry, a new head coach this season, possibly this season, but maybe they'll see it out. So I don't we'll see what Quenneville wants to do in that case. But two new coaching positions up. That's I believe the fourth coach firing this season, only a quarter of the way through the season, because we saw the Kings, the Blackhawks obviously with Quenneville, and now the Blues and the Oilers make coaching staff changes. Moving on to our mailbag, and remember, you can tweet us at IckGaw on Twitter, and you can also email us at IckGawPod at gmail.com. This question comes from Pat, and he has a series of questions about Jack Eichel and the captaincy and the general culture on the team. His first question was, has Eichel's captaincy settled this team's culture? What percentage of this year's success do you attribute to cultural calming and team feeling? And would this team have been more successful last year if they give Eichel the C. And that's kind of a talking point of the last season. People really did not like the four alternate captains decision last year. And people were really moaning, bemoaning the fact, sorry, that uh, they had not announced Ka- uh, Eichel as the captain going into the, or going into this off season that they waited that long to announce Jack Eichel as a captain. And we're leaving the opportunity for there to possibly be a four alternate situation. Um, that first, or like kind of addressing all the questions at once, the culture change is apparent. And I do think it has had a massive effect on the calming of this team and the team feeling. You see how this team celebrates wins. You see how this team celebrates goals. This team is together. And after the win against the Penguins, Eichel spoke about the family atmosphere and the sense of togetherness that is developing this season. That said, I do think Eichel's captaincy has contributed to that, but I'm hesitant to commit too much causality there. It's definitely not a coincidence, but there are many factors involved on top of this. Number one, this team is just better from back to front. I think that contributes to a um, an increased culture and attitude. Number two, this locker room is drastically different. From last season, remove Evander Kane, Ryan O'Reilly, Robin Lehner, who were like probably maybe the three most negative attitudes in the locker room last year, and also remove a billion one-year unrestricted free agents who are now all out of the league, and then add Skinner, Hutton, Allmark, Sherry, all winners with an excellent attitude and character, And now you've got guys who are buying into the long-term aspect of this team. I mean, think about it last year. You had like three or four major players who were all negative Nancys, and then no less than six players who are looking around thinking, well, I'm not here next year. And so we're looking at a completely different locker room, both in what they're capable of doing on the ice, but also what they're capable of being together in a locker room. Also, I think a major contributing factor is that I think a winning culture breeds a better culture. When that atmosphere breeds success, I think you get a little bit of a feedback loop of better culture. And so I think the team being better, the locker room being different, and the winning, uh, the fact that this team is finding success early in the season, I think are all major contributing factors to this cultural aspect. I do think Eichel's captaincy and having a clear leader and not having to worry about the O'Reilly versus Eichel aspect, who is the real leader of this team question this season. I think that definitely contributes, but I think it's one of many factors. Last question, would an Eichel captaincy have saved the Sabres or improved the Sabres last season? Um, 
No, I don't think so. I didn't like the four alternates. I'll be the first person to say that, but I don't think just handing Eichel the captaincy and having a clear leader would have been a a, a savior for this team. I mean, this, that team last season needed a savior. That team needed Jesus. There were too many issues in the locker room. There wasn't enough talent to capitalize on the ice. And Eichel, I think, had too much growing to do last year. He's still, I think, growing as a, I don't I don't think, I, I'm pretty certain that he is growing as a player, as a person, as a leader. And asking a third-year pro to lead a locker room full of international new players with a lot of rough attitudes in that locker room and a lot of dudes who, frankly, I think just didn't care and didn't want to buy into any ter- kind of long-term success. And I'm not I'm not trying to be overly critical of these guys, but think about this. Benoit Puglio, not in the league anymore. Who else is on there? Jacob Josephson, not in the league anymore. Seth Griffith, not in the league anymore. All right? And these guys weren't in this for the long haul and contributing to this team. They're gone. So I think that wasn't an environment where you wanted Jack Eichel to have his first year of captaincy. And I think... I wouldn't want to buy into the fact that Jack Eichel being captain could have saved last season. Um, I think last season was necessary. I think we had to go to the lowest of the low to find our way back into the light in this situation with this team. So, Pat, thank you so much for your questions. Remember, you can tweet us at ickgaw or email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. That is just about going to do it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you have enjoyed this show, we would so love it if you would like and subscribe and drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you so much for your kind words and support. We'll see you guys out there. Keep those heads up, Sabres fans. Remember, as always, it might not get much better, but it can't get any worse. We'll see you guys soon. Dick into Aposo. Aposo hanging on to it back at the point. Aposo. Drops it off in the corner to Eichel. Eichel buzzing around. Eichel in the center lane. Score! Jack 